0: Hello and a very warm welcome to this, episode 3 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm Paul, the host and true crime enthusiast of the title, and I begin as always by thanking you the listener for joining me today. Your support and interest keeps me in the world, and if you're entertained at all by the episodes that I put out, and you keep coming back to listen, then I must be doing something right, so thanks very much guys. I am as always very enthused by the feedback that this podcast has been getting to date. All of the comments, good or bad, They are all taken on board and I like to think that I take myself just the right amount of serious. I appreciate constructive criticism, of course. And as I've said before, the pointers that I have been sent have all been welcomed. I feel this podcast is ever developing and I'm thoroughly enjoying what I'm doing. I really hope that shines through in my delivery. As mentioned last episode, Recently, the True Crime Enthusiast has collaborated on the latest two-part episode from the great podcast The Minds of Madness, and it's a case that concerns the UK spree killer Derek Bird, the perpetrator of the Cumbria Massacre in 2010. I know that the first part of this two-part episode is already up, and I believe that part two is imminent. Together, myself and the hosts, Tyler and Beck, have come up with an amazing two-part episode that if you haven't already listened to, please take the time out to go and check it out. The hosts have done something wonderful with the script, and I guarantee that you won't be disappointed. So the case featured on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast this week, and next week as it happens, is the first two-part episode for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. And it's ended up that way because when I was writing it, it's such a fascinating case and there is so much that goes into it, that I believe a two-part episode is justified. Hope that you, the listener, agrees. The case goes back to London in the hot summer of 1986, back in the 80s when every summer seemed to be a scorcher in the UK. I was eight years old myself, I couldn't think about much more than the 18, really. Now there are several serial killers from the annals of London crime that will be instantly familiar to the true crime buff. You have of course Jack the Ripper, John Reginald Halliday Christie and Dennis Nilsen to name but a few. But a lesser known and often forgotten killer stalked the district of South London over the summer of 1986. And one who preyed on one of the most vulnerable groups of society, the elderly. Over a 17-week period of sickening crime, the killer was to claim the lives of at least seven pensioners in the most horrific and brutal fashion. Listeners should be advised that this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes that some may find disturbing or upsetting. Inclusion of details that may cause this is in no way an attempt to shock or upset, but I firmly believe that detail is integral to any case and have tried to stick to this within the episode whilst conveying the story in a sensitive manner. So with that in mind... Please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the first part of the case of the Stockwell Strangler. Stockwell is a district in inner south London, situated in the London borough of Lambeth. It was for a time considered to be one of the poorer areas of London, but has undergone a bit of an overhaul in recent years, and as it's in proximity to central London and as a result has excellent transport links, it's now an up-and-coming area. It does have its brushes with infamy in its history. Most recently, for example, Stockwell Underground Station was the scene of the high-profile wrongful killing of Brazilian John charles de Menez in 2005 by armed officers of the London Metropolitan Police. He was wrongfully killed after being mistakenly thought to be a suspect in the attempted bombings of 21st July 2005, the attacks that followed the horrific London bombings of 7-7, which I'm sure we all undoubtedly remember. But this killing is not the first high-profile crime to have put Stockwell on the map. 78-year-old retired schoolteacher Nancy Ms was typical of so many old people throughout not just London, but throughout the UK as a whole. She was a reclusive spinster who lived alone, sadly in near-squalid conditions, in a run-down basement flat in West Hill Road in the southwest London suburb of Wandsworth. Nancy suffered from mild dementia and as a result her home was often in near squalid conditions and extremely cluttered so she had a council organized home help who would come in a couple of times each week to help clean up the flat and cook a few meals for her. On the morning of the 9th of April 1986 the home help called in as was usual to visit Nancy for one of her weekly visits but found Nancy lying dead in bed. There seemed to be nothing untoward Nancy was found laid in bed with the covers tucked under her chin and it seemed as though she'd passed away peacefully in her sleep some days earlier, as is so common often with the elderly. The authorities and the doctor were called to the scene and upon an examination of her body, the doctor signed a death certificate to say that Nancy had indeed died of natural causes. And that was nearly that. The death duties were being discussed and a cremation was being planned there and then, when the home help noticed that Nancy's portable television set was missing from the cluttered flat. This made alarm bells ring, as though it had suddenly occurred that this might not be as clear-cut a death as first thought, and could possibly have had more sinister overtones. Police were called to the scene, and a post-mortem was ordered to be carried out on Nancy. When the post-mortem was performed, it was to discover that these suspicions were correct. Nancy was found to have severe bruising to her upper and lower body, finger marks around her throat, cracked ribs, and she'd been sexually assaulted as traces of semen were found on her body. In the opinion of the pathologist, Nancy had been attacked whilst asleep. The killer had knelt on her chest, causing the cracked ribs and severe bruising, then clamped his left hand over her mouth and throttled her with his right hand. When sure she was dead, the killer had then turned her over, sexually assaulted her, then rearranged the body almost tenderly and left her tucked up, looking almost at peace. So police were dealing with a case of murder here, and it looked at first like a burglary gone wrong. There was no sign of forced entry to the flat, but a bedroom window was ajar. Now Nancy was known to have often slept with the window left open if it was hot, and the spring and summer of 1986 had brought with it a mini heatwave to the UK, so the killer had ample chance to gain access to her flat. But if it was a burglary... Then what was the need to sexually assault and kill an elderly woman also? Nancy was frail and wouldn't have been able to put up any sort of resistance against an intruder. So what kind of monster does that on top of a burglary? If the killer hadn't taken something as obvious as Nancy's television set from the cluttered flat, then it's likely would have gotten away with murder, as a death would have been deemed due to natural causes. The doctor even suggested that it was natural causes, which makes me think, hmm, probably didn't do too much more than a cursory look, really. Because the killer had drawn attention to his crime by taking the television set, however, forensic scientists were at the scene to examine it, and whilst doing so, they found their first, albeit small, clue. A short head hair, deemed later to have come from a male with Afro-Caribbean heritage, was found in Nancy's bedding. The post-mortem also found a sample of the killer's semen on her body, with no other leads available, Remember, in 1986, DNA and offender profiling were in their infancy in the UK. Police began trawling through lists of burglars and sex offenders known to operate within the South London area to try to identify a list of potential suspects. They were still trawling and working through the lists, when two months later and a couple of miles away, a second elderly lady was discovered dead. Warwick House is a block of low-rise flats located on the Overton Road estate in Stockwell and it was just a few miles from Nancy Emms's basement flat. It was here on the 9th of June 1986 that the body of 67-year-old widow Janet Cockett was found in her flat on the first floor. The two women were polar opposites. Whereas Nancy had been a spinster and was a near recluse, Janet had been married three times and had four children from her previous marriages. She was a relatively recent widow, but was still an active pensioner who loved spending time with her family, who was outgoing, and who was even the chairperson of a local tenants group. Like Nancy, Janet was found lying in bed, and a cursory glance would have said that she too had died peacefully in her sleep. She too lay tucked up in bed with her bedclothes pulled under her chin. But a longer look around showed that this wasn't the case. Janet was found to be naked in her bed, with the nightdress that she normally wore found ripped from her body and placed on a chair near the bed. Yet the killer had taken the time to fold it carefully before placing it there. She too was found to have been strangled with bare hands in the same way Nancy Ems had suffered, although unlike Nancy, Janet had not been sexually assaulted. There was another odd feature to this crime scene. On a mantelpiece in Janet's bedroom, several family photographs that adorned it had been placed either face down or had been turned towards the wall. Was the killer ashamed of what he'd done, and could not stand to have what he felt to be accusing eyes watching him as he committed this horrific crime? Again, a forensic examination bore more fruit, It seemed that Janet's killer had taken absolutely no care or mindset to conceal his identity, as a palm print was found on the bathroom window, and another partial palm print was found on a flower pot on the mantelpiece. A search of palm print records of offenders that police held on file for a match to these prints began immediately. So two elderly ladies had been killed in a near-identical fashion, two months and only a few miles apart. At the time... Each investigation was run separately from different police stations, although detectives investigating both cases did exchange information with one another as cursory. It was decided at that stage, however, that there was nothing concrete to link both crimes. Five miles of metropolitan London separated both crime scenes, with a population of over a million people in these five miles. Now it seems to me quite unbelievable that they weren't immediately linked. I mean, five miles in London is only a few stops on the underground after all. And within that distance, regardless of however many people there were, was it really likely that there were two killers working independently with no knowledge of each other who targeted the same choice of victim and killed them in an identical manner? Just over two weeks after Janet's murder, however, Police were forced to rethink this possibility of the crimes not being committed by the same person. The man who was to become known as the Stockwell Strangler attacked again, but this time his victim was to survive and to give police their first description and insight into the mind of the killer. Fred Prentice was a retired 73 year old pensioner who lived in an old people's home called Bradmead on Cedars Road in Clapham. At about 3 o'clock in the morning of the 27th of June 1986, he was awoken from his sleep by the sound of footsteps in the corridor outside his room in the home. Sitting up, he saw a shadow cross the frosted glass of his door. The unlocked door opened, and a stranger, a young man dressed all in dark clothing, entered the room. As frail Mr Prentice fumbled to turn on his bedside light, the young man put his finger to his lips to indicate hush and then ran and jumped on Mr. Prentice before he could shout out. He then gripped the old man's throat and began to squeeze his windpipe in a powerful grip, but then relaxed it in a horrific and chilling act. The attacker seemed to be playing with his victim as though this was a game, as he repeated this terrifying action four times. All the while, he had a deranged grin on his face and kept hissing just one word over and over. Kill. 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 Although he was unable to cry out, Mr Prentice struggled wildly and using his last remaining strength managed to hit a panic button situated on the wall above his bed. As he did so, the attacker threw him against the wall and was then off the bed and out of the room in a flash. By the time a warden came into the room to respond to the panic alarm, but just about a minute later, the man had gone. He was found to have gained access through a window in the complex that had been left open because of the sweltering heat. Fred Prentice was later to describe his horrific and frightening ordeal. He said, I was absolutely terrified, but there was nothing I could do. He was sitting on my chest with his fingers clutching at my neck. I thought I was a goner. I kept pleading with him to let me go and take whatever he wanted and leave, but he took nothing and he took no notice of me. It was a nightmare. He then chucked my head against the wall and ran off. The blow almost knocked me unconscious and I slumped to the floor too petrified to move. I suppose he thought he must have killed me because he ran out leaving me for dead. I was too frightened to even watch him go. I shall always have his face in my memory, his terrible grin. He ruined my life. Powerful words indeed, eh? So had the killer of Nancy and Janet struck again just two and a half weeks after he'd last attacked? Detectives investigating the attempted murder of Fred Prentice considered if this was linked to the two earlier murders but were puzzled in the change of preference of victim. Would a killer attack both women and men? In this case, however, detectives had from Mr. Prentice a description of the man they were hunting, albeit a bit of an understandably vague one. He was described as being young, in his late teens to mid-twenties, dark haired and suntanned they theorized that he was an already experienced burglar but one that had for some reason turned his back on burglary as a priority and began to focus more upon committing murder instead from the way he had toyed with mr prentice he clearly enjoyed killing and he needed to be caught and stopped before he committed more carnage and any remaining doubts that detectives had that a serial killer was operating around south london were dispelled the very next night when the strangler struck not once, but twice in the same night. It was again at an old people's home, this time in the council-run Somerville Hastings house in Stockwell Park, Crescent. In the early hours of the 28th of June 1986, the bodies of 84-year-old Valentine Gleam, a former British army officer, and 94-year-old Polish-born Sobrygniev Stabrava were found in their adjoining rooms at the home. Both men had been strangled by a killer who had again used his bare hands, and Valentine Gleam had also been sexually assaulted. Shortly before the bodies were discovered, night duty staff at the home had become suspicious when at about four o'clock in the morning they heard the unmistakable sound of someone using an electric razor and they had actually seen the shadow of the intruder creeping about through the corridors they had armed themselves with sticks in fear and had contacted police but the man had vanished by the time the police arrived he had gained access once again through an open window, and chillingly had taken the time to have a wash and a shave after committing double murder, as a freshly used flannel was found in a basin in the ensuite bathroom of Mr. Stabrava, as was a plugged-in electric razor. The description given of the man Stafford had seen matched the description given by Mr. Prentice. By this time, the deranged killer had claimed four victims over an 11-week period, ...and police had finally been forced to conclude that London had another serial killer operating within it. This intensified police efforts to catch him... ...and dozens of plainclothes police officers were placed to carry out nighttime covert surveillance... ...at dozens of old people's homes throughout South London. Now the killer must have learned of this... ...because he struck again just over a week after the double murder in the Somerville Hastings house... ...but this time he he struck away from the Stockwell area. This time... The Strangler crossed the River Thames and went to the Greater London home of 82-year-old widower William Carman. Here, he broke into his flat at Sybil Thorndyke House on Islington's Marcus Estate in the early hours sometime between the 6th and the ninth of July. This was another low-rise block and so entering the flat proved no problem for the experienced burglar who by now had turned experienced killer. Mr Carman, who lived alone, was found dead in his bed on the morning of 9th of July, with his body arranged as was now the killer's modus operandi. He'd been strangled in the now familiar fashion. He'd also been sexually assaulted, and this time there were clear signs of robbery. Some 400 to 500 pounds that Mr. Carman had saved and had hidden in the flat had been taken, and the place had been ransacked, although police still believed that robbery had by now become a secondary motive. Three days after Mr. Carman was found, On the 12th of July and back over the south side of the Thames, another elderly man was found dead. 75-year-old widower Trevor Thomas was found dead in his bath at his home in Barton Court on Jeffrey's Road in Clapham. He'd been dead for some time, possibly a number of weeks, and as a result, much of the forensic evidence found with the body was so deteriorated that it was beyond usable. It was impossible therefore to determine whether he'd been strangled or sexually assaulted and so for this reason, Mr Thomas was not initially included in the strangler's list of victims but police were 90% certain that they were looking at the sixth victim of the Stockwell strangler. They had no such doubts eight days later when the body of 74-year-old William Downs was discovered at his home on the Overton estate. The scene of the strangler's second murder, that of Janet Cockett Mr. Downs was a reclusive pensioner who lived alone and who rarely left the small studio flat that he lived in, in a block known as Holly's House, which was again a low-rise block of flats of the type that the strangler favoured. On the morning of the 20th of July 1986, Mr. Downs' son found him dead in bed, having been strangled and assaulted in the now-canonical Stockwell strangler fashion. Mr. Downs' son was later to say that he'd warned his father about the dangers posed by the killer on the loose, saying i told him i warned him to keep his door and windows locked especially at night but it was hot and i think he just left one slightly open to let some air in sadly it was this slightly ajar window that was all the chance that the stockwell strangler had needed detective chief superintendent ken thompson of the metropolitan police had by now been placed in overall charge of the case and in late July he held a media conference which was packed by journalists and television reporters, who by this time had been linking the murders as part of a series, and had coined the moniker the Stockwell Strangler. Here, Detective Chief Superintendent Thompson told the packed out room all that police knew about the killer they were hunting. All but two of the murders had taken place in the Stockwell District, and all of the murders had taken place in the early hours of the morning. The killer favoured low-rise housing or blocks of flats as they were easier to enter and police believed that he picked out properties where it was apparent that elderly people lived, for example properties that had clearly visible railings attached to the outer wall. The description gleaned from the strangler surviving victim Fred Prentice, and the staff at the Somerville Hastings house was of a young looking white male with short dark hair and a suntanned face who had a terrible frightening grin. They believed that the killer was local to or was familiar with the Stockwell area, as he seemed to know his way around the network of estates and residential areas. They theorised that the strangler could possibly have been someone who, if he was employed, whose employment gave them regular access to old people's homes, such as a postman or a milkman or a home help or meals on wheels, and he was using this employment to pick out potential targets. The theory was that the man they were hunting was an experienced burglar, although one who was quite careless and showed little forensic awareness because he'd left trace evidence and palm prints at a number of the murder sites. They also recognised that the killer was mentally unstable and sexually disturbed, with the consensus being that he was a gerontophile. Now, if you didn't already sort of know, um, you obviously know what a paedophile is. A gerontophile is someone attracted to someone at the opposite end of the age spectrum. They knew he was extremely dangerous and that he needed to be stopped quickly. A police psychologist had been brought in to try to profile the killer, to try to determine the reason for his choice of victim, and to see whether the way the victims were found was the killer attempting to cover his tracks and disguise his murders as natural deaths, or perhaps part of some bizarre psychological ritual that was important to him. Pensioners in South London were left terrified at this time, as the national newspapers had gone big on the story by now. After all, murder is sensational and makes news and sells papers. And many old folk who lived alone in South London were left in fear that they could be the next victim of the killer. Their fear was built up by descriptions of the actions in the sensational press stories about the Stockwell Strangler and how he was a faceless monster that was stalking the elderly. A particularly chilling artist's impression often accompanied these stories, made chilling because of its vagueness. But this press coverage didn't just serve to frighten pensioners. It at least also got the knowledge across that there was a killer out there. The Metropolitan Police issued extra warnings to the elderly to be extra vigilant and to keep their windows and doors fastened at night and for people who had elderly neighbours and family members living alone to check up on them regularly. The charity helped the aged set up a special telephone link for elderly people to contact who were left in fear by the spate of killings. Police patrols were stepped up throughout the area and teams of plainclothes detectives continued to man the established nightly observation points, hoping to catch the strangler in the act. Meanwhile, the search of police records for a match to the killer's palm print continued. Recovered from the scene of the previous murder, that of Mr. Downs, police were able to again find the killer's palm prints. They'd been left on a garden gate and on the kitchen wall of Mr. Downs' studio flat this time. They proved to be an exact match with a palm print that had been removed from the home of Janet Cockett, the strangler's second victim that had been killed weeks earlier on the same estate. But a match still hadn't been found. The reason why? Well back in 1986, fingerprint records were in the transitional stage of being computerised from those held as physical copies. So although hundreds of thousands of fingerprint records had already been transferred to computer disk, the work of transferring palm prints had not even begun at that time. So this meant that the matching prints that detectives had from the two murder scenes had to be checked manually against records held on file by a small team of detectives. And it must have been a very daunting task because they had no less than 4 million files to work through. But they managed to narrow down the pool to a manageable size by concentrating on known South London burglars and petty criminals and surely a match would be found soon. The pressure on the team was immense because there was no way to know exactly when the Strangler would strike again and they needed to find that match before he did. But sadly, a match came just too late to prevent the Strangler from claiming what would turn out to be his final victim. 80-year-old Florence Tisdall lived alone in a ground floor flat in an apartment block at Ranla Gardens, Hurlingham, close to the River Thames in Putney Bridge. It had been her home for 60 years and all of her adult life. Florence was partly deaf and blind and could only move around with the aid of a walking frame so she wasn't able to get about very much. Like many old ladies, Florence loved cats and they were her company and aside from the three of her own that she had, she'd regularly entertain and feed the various neighbourhood stray cats for some more company in her life. She'd regularly leave a window open for them to come and go as they pleased. On the day of the 23rd of July 1986, Florence had managed a rare trip out to have her hair done, especially for the occasion that day of the wedding the, of the Duke and Duchess of York, which was broadcast on television that day. A staunch royalist, she had watched the wedding on television whilst having a glass of sherry in celebration. Afterwards, it was another hot night, and as usual, Florence had left a window open to let her cats come and go, and to let some fresh air in before retiring to bed quite early in the evening. The strangler. Finding his way in, took his final victim, but this time he struck earlier in the evening than he usually had. Florence was found the next day by the apartment block caretaker, Terry Bristow, who often looked in on her. She was found lying in her bed in the all too familiar pose. She'd been savagely sexually assaulted. She had the signature bruise into her throat and also had two broken ribs where the strangler had knelt upon her chest while strangling her. A post-mortem determined that she had been killed about 12 hours before she had been found, which meant that the strangler had struck at an earlier time of night than he usually had. He would even struck at a time where people might have even been around. Yet tragically, even if defenceless Florence had managed to cry out, his screams would have been drowned out by the noise coming from a disco that was happening in celebration of the royal wedding that was happening that evening in the Eight Bells pub opposite her home. The death of such a defenceless pensioner particularly shocked police and the public, and the Metropolitan Police came under fire due to their perceived failure to capture the strangler. Yet suddenly, the breakthrough that police needed came. Detectives pouring through the thousands of prints on file for a match to the palm prints that the strangler had left at two of the scenes found a match in police files, and the strangler suddenly had a face and a name. And that is where we leave the case of the Stockwell Strangler, at least for this week. Coming next week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the story will be concluded. There's much more to tell and I hope the listener can join me again next week because, as I say, it is a fascinating case. Pretty shocking stuff so far though, isn't it? Personally, I find crimes against the elderly particularly horrific because they are, alongside children, such vulnerable members of society. I wonder what you, the listener, think so far. Do you, like me, find this week's episode particularly shocking and tragic, but also fascinating and compelling? If any listeners would like to share any thoughts on the episode this week, then please feel free to do so. There'll be a discussion post up on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook, so any listeners who wish to give opinion, please feel free to do so there. As usual, if you don't already and you wish to, of course, you can follow me on the usual social media or my weekly WordPress blog, which can be found at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com. I'm also on Twitter as at TC underscore enthusiast, on Facebook as the True Crime Enthusiast, and on Instagram as True Crime Enthusiast. I do welcome a follow and an interaction, and I always take the time out to respond. I hope you can join me next week when we conclude this case of the Stockwell Strangler. Until then... I've been Paul, your host and the true crime enthusiast of the title and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Until then, take care, be safe and goodbye for now.